Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. So let's uh, go ahead and get started with a word of prayer tonight. Father, thank you for this this night and for this opportunity to study this great book. I pray that you would uh, give us an adventure here as we study it through the semester. Open our hearts, minds, help us understand what your word says. Guide our discussions, and we just thank you for what lies ahead. In Christ's name, amen. Um, everybody got a syllabus? Okay. Um, here's the necessary information. Got my name there. Um my phone number, my wife is deaf, so if I'm not around, she's going to say, huh? So just call back at a later point. Um, email address, I check it every day, multiple times a day. If I don't, I got email withdrawal symptoms, you know. You're not connected. One of the ladies at work, her, she bought a real nice Mac, and it, the screen went blank on it. She had to get it repaired, and she had withdrawal symptoms for like a week. She couldn't get on the Internet. It was like traumatic. You know, she almost needed therapy. Um, and then all the, uh, the um, like handouts and things like that from the class, you can find here. They're Word files, PDFs, um, PowerPoint slides, all right there. You just go out there and you can download them um, to your computer and do what you want with them. So that's all the um, necessary information there. Um, the syllabus, um, they had us redo this entire thing. Um, the course description, we're going to examine Acts. And um, look, the more discussion we have, the more fun this is going to be. All right? So by all means, a lot, you know, there's a couple of you that never had me before, but the more we argue, the more you learn, because that's when you're starting to think, is when you're starting to discuss things. So don't be afraid, all right, to, to challenge what's being taught. We're all learning. We're all on the path here, all right? Um, I often say my job is to get you to think. If I get, if you walk out of this class and you thought through the issues and you learned something, I've done my job. Even if you don't agree with me, I've done my job because you at least thought through the issues. So with all of our backgrounds, I'm sure there's going to be some diverse understandings of some of these passages, and that's a good thing because we're going to learn from each other. Um, we are going to study it basically exegetically, so we're going to start in Chapter 1 and end up in Chapter 28. And we're going to hit all the passages, um, some of them probably more deeply than others, but we're going to try to hit every everything in the book of Acts. Um, when you're done with the course, you should be able to understand how Acts fits into the canon of Scripture. That's very important. Why did the Holy Spirit put this book here? There's a reason for it. Um, you're going to be able to have a good understanding of the missionary journeys of Paul and have an understanding of how Christianity spread, at least through the first few few decades of the history of the church. Um, this, this whole issue of spiritual gifts, I know it's a very controversial issue, but Acts talks about them, so we're going to look and see how that all fits in 
to the um, unfolding of God's plans for the church. Um, and you're going to have a good understanding of how the church expanded from Pentecost to Paul's first imprisonment around A.D. 60. Textbooks we've got from Jerusalem to Rome. Homer Kent's a, a pretty good author, and there's, there's some good stuff in here. Um, he's got a lot of good background material, so that's helpful. And if you want to go a little deeper, you got John MacArthur, and you can pick whichever site you want. All right, but whichever site you pick, you got to read. All right, so um, the nice thing about MacArthur's is chapters are pretty short and they're easy reads. Those of you who've had his stuff, it's really nice to have. Um, they're not difficult at all. And um, basically, I, I come prepared to talk all night, so I don't want to do that. So you need to learn to talk and interact. And uh, we do, definitely. And uh, feel comfortable. You know, I, I believe me, I do, any, those who have had me before, I am not upset if you disagree. I, I really, it doesn't matter to me. That's how we learn. All right. So if you hear something and you don't quite agree with that, let's talk about it, you know, because that's what's going to help us. Um, yeah, that's why you got a D last time. No, he got a D because he didn't turn in his paper. No, it's not true. Actually, he did turn in. I just couldn't read it. It was encrypted. I opened up Word, and I had boxes and squiggles and everything else. He said, well, I sent it to you. And then I erased it from my hard yeah, disk, yeah. you know. It's like the dog ate it. <laughs> All right. Um, as far as the requirements go, it's different for CU or college. Um, you basically, one thing is you need to read the book. Whatever book you pick, just read them. You know, in the next 16 weeks, you should be able to get through both of these books. They're, they're not that bad. Um, I will have a midterm exam covering the first half of the course, final covering the second half. Um, for the college credit folks, write a paper on something that interests you in the book of Acts. Pick your topic, something that you really want to go and into a little deeper. And the thing I'm looking for in the research paper is not all the quotes from everybody that you've read, but have you thought through the issues? I'd rather you read, you be able to interact and, and come up to a conclusion and give your thoughts and your reasoning than quoting 25 people. Um, it irritates me when I go to these places and they give me all these quotes from 25 or 30 different authors and I say, well, what do you believe? Well, you know, I don't know, but this is what these other 10 guys say. Well, I'm not interested in that. You'd be able to think through. It's more important that you be able to think through and find something that you want to study and want to learn. And that way you'll do better at it. And uh, I had to put number five in because that's part of the boilerplate um, for the syllabus. Um, there is one extra thing I am going to have. And if you, here's a question. Does everybody have a computer or access to a computer to get this stuff? Does anybody do not have access? All right. Out there on, out here, there's a thing called Chapters to Remember. All right. And, um, yeah, right here. Go to this page and you can download Chapters to Remember. And, uh, basically what it is, those will be on the test. And basically what it is, um, what, uh, what's Acts 13 and 14 deal with? Yeah. Except this is for the book of Acts. What's Acts, what's in Acts 13 and 14? Uh, what's in Acts 15, 16? What is that all about? Um, hopefully, you know, when you get done studying the book of Acts, somebody says, well, you know, what, what, what's going on over in Acts 17? You say, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, well, I, uh, 
you should have an idea of sort of what's there, you know. So that's what these are. They're just short little X13, 14, Paul's first journey, 15, Jerusalem Council, 16, the Philippian jailer, 17, Mars Hill, you know, 18 is the third missionary journey, you know, that kind of stuff. So you get an idea of what's in the book of Acts. And um, those will be on, on the test. Um, here's your grading um, right there. And that's the standard Moody Bible Institute scale. And then the schedule is on the third page. There's one correction to the schedule. Um, I'm going to be out of the state on August 26th, not August 26th, October 26th. Um, so we won't have a class that week, all right, October 26th. Um, but we'll make up the time, don't worry. And see, it's really bad because you say, well, my midterm is due that day. Well, then it's just due November 2nd, so you got an extra week to do it. Um, the way I give the, do the test is you get a, I give you a take-home exam. You fill it out. Don't cheat on it. If you cheat, God will get you. Um, you're all taking Bible courses. Hopefully you can be trusted. If you're not, you shouldn't be taking a course, I guess. Um, but turn it in next week. So that's how that'll work. Any questions so far on um, what we'll be doing? Again, we'll have a couple of of um, couple of times during the semester where we'll have pizza two or three times. We'll order it out. You can, of course, order other stuff. You don't have to eat pizza if you don't want to. Um, the other thing I do is I record the classes so that if you miss a class because you've got something come up in your life, you can borrow a CD. You can borrow them for free. If you want to purchase a whole set of the CDs, they're a dollar a piece, and there's two per night. So anybody who wants a set of the CDs for their own, use maybe to put them to sleep at night when they're tired and they can't nod off or something, um, they're a dollar a piece, and we'll do. There's two CDs per class, so and those will be available the week after the class. So if you want those, let me know. There should be a sheet going around, um, a sign-up sheet. Hopefully everybody filled that out. So, anything else? What should we do in case your laptop catches on fire? This one won't. Um, did you hear about that Dell laptop that caught on fire in that guy's truck? I guess it's a true story. He had a, he was going hunting or I don't know something like that, and he had a Dell laptop, and it caught fire in his back seat, and he couldn't get in it. The truck caught on fire and burned the truck up. The gas tank blew up, destroying the entire truck. And then he called Dell and asked them, you know, what do I do? And they said, well, what's the serial number? Yeah. You know, and he's saying it's melted plastic. And I guess the person on the other one was pretty belligerent wanting him a serial number from this charred piece of, but it's not, it's the batteries. It's not the laptop. It's Sony's fault. I do. I, I have two batteries and I get two new ones. So I'm not complaining about that. But yeah, I guess it actually did catch a fire and burn up. But, um, Uncle Don. Uncle Don is the keeper. Yeah, by the way, the way I usually do it, I go an hour and 20 minutes somewhere around, because that goes on the side of a CD. If I get any more than that, it doesn't fit on the CD. So we go about an hour, 15 minutes. We take a, what, 20-minute break somewhere around in there. We go another hour and 15 minutes, and then you're out of here. All right. So that's sort of the format. And Don is the keeper of the crossroads, so we got all the goodies we need. Yeah, coffee, cappuccino, pop, beer. cookie, no, no beer, uh, 
Unless, unless that's where you keep it in the refrigerator in the back. I wonder if keeps sneaking in the refrigerator down there. I didn't know what he had there. Now I do. All right. So let's talk about the book of Acts. And um, what I'm going to go through tonight, I got a, uh, actually a presentation I put together, but I don't have anything to project it with. Um, well, I did. I did Sunday. And he said, oh, sure, I'll have it for you. They let me down. So that's no big deal. I can. Now, I'm not going to, you know, I won't have a presentation every night, but tonight it fit well into that. It's kind of hard to put up a verse-by-verse -verse presentation every every week. But um, let's look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Um, how do we know? Tonight what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to cover a lot of general things. Regarding the book of regarding book facts, and uh, just just bear with us as, as as I go through some of this stuff. You know, you might be saying, "Well, what? Why is what you're talking about have anything to do with me understanding the book of Acts?" And the answer to that is very simple. To understand the book of Acts, you got to put it in its historical, literal, grammatical context. All right. You got to understand a little bit of the unfolding purpose and plan of God, so that you know how to interpret the book and the events in the book, all right? And if you don't get that right, interpreting the book is a real problem because you're going to wind up all over the map on the thing. So it's very important to understand some background concepts and understand the unfolding plan of God and how God's worked his purpose out through the years. And, and especially since in the book of Acts, and I'm going to say this ahead of time, but we'll, we'll fill it out when we get there. It's a book of transition. It's a transition book. And one of the one of the great um, errors sometimes that people do or make when they come to the book of Acts is they want to use it to teach doctrine. It's an illustration of doctrine, definitely. But it's a book of transition. You're going from the old covenant to the new covenant. It's a book of history. It's telling you some events, what's going on. And when you try to take that and make um, doctrinal points from it that are not supported elsewhere in the New Testament, you find yourself on thin ice, on shaky ground. All right. And we're going to talk about that as we go along and we'll illustrate some of the some of the you know why that is, is so. Um, but let's just give an overview of it and and sort of a, a little bit background of it. Um, how do we know, of course, the first thing you want to ask when you look at a book of the Bible is, how do I know that's supposed to be there, right? I mean, anybody see the lost books of the Bible? They got that little book out there, you know, that says, well, here's the ones that they, they lost, they forgot to put in the scripture. We talked about that last time, you know, the whole canonization thing. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas is another one now, um, and so the question is, well, how do we know that this is authoritative scripture? How do we know that it should be part of the canon of scripture? How do we know that it's, it's the Holy Spirit-inspired work that should be there? And the way you do that is you go back and you look at how the early church accepted it, right? Remember when we went through canonization, we talked about how canonization is not a scientific experiment. I mean, there's certain criteria, of course, for a book to be included in the canon, but 
it's not like, well, 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 this fat passes this and this and this and this and this. It's in. All right. There's also the acceptance by the church. In fact, that's really what drove canonization. What books were the early church willing to die for? What books did they consider authoritative? That's very weighty in determining the canon of Scripture. And really, when you talk about canonization, it was an affirmation of what was already accepted, not a selection. Remember, we talked about that. It wasn't that we selected what was there, but we said, everybody is using the book of Acts, and everybody says, yes, that, that we accept that, that is, that is what we consider to be Scripture. So as you go back and look at this, you find, for example, Polycarp. Who is he? Search founder, he's a disciple of John. All right. Um, Polycarp alludes to Acts and his epistle to the Philippians. Now, why is that important? Well, Polycarp was the second generation, right? You have the Apostle John, and then you have Polycarp, and Polycarp alludes to passages from the book of Acts as Scripture. So what would that tell you about his thought of Acts? He considered it Scripture. He considered it authoritative. Um, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. Okay? In other words, John discipled Polycarp. He was an early church father. Okay? He was from the first century AD, basically. All right? So Polycarp did not get his information secondhand from John, he got it firsthand from John. Okay? I don't know about Polycarp. From early church documents and writings and. and you know, you can go out and get a book called the Apostolic Fathers that have a lot of their writings in it. And one of the things, of course, you do is, is you know, when you're making the case for Scripture, let's say the canonization of Scripture, you go back and say, well, you know, Polycarp said this was from, you know, accepted this as Scripture. Ignatius accepted it as Scripture, who was another early church father. Um, Tertullian accepted it as Scripture, another early church father. And these are guys that live right next to the apostles, you know. They're right there, and they have their pulse on what the early church accepted. All right. So when they say something in Scripture, that lends credence to the acceptance of this as a, as an authoritative record. Okay. Um, Justin Martyr is another one. Um, he includes alludes Acts one nine um, in his On the Resurrection. He, these are old treatises that the early church fathers wrote. And again, these are people that wrote in the first and second century ADs. These are people who either knew apostles or they knew people who knew apostles. You know, they're not separated in time from them by hundreds of years. I mean, they're right up next to them. All right. Um, uh, Tatian, another one, talks about Paul's speech to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. Another early church father. By the way, these are not going to be on the test. I'm just trying to help you understand that very early on, you had some very authoritative people, founding members of the early church, accepting this as scripture. Um, the Muratorian Canon. Now, what is that? Well, the Muratorian Canon goes back to the second century A.D. And a canon was a list of books, basically. It's a, it's a list. And the Muratorian Canon is the earliest list of New Testament books that we have where they actually try to list these are the books that we recognize as Scripture. And Acts is listed there. Um, in fact, the Muratorian Canon states, but the Acts of all the apostles are written in one volume, 
Luke compiled for the most excellent Theophilus. What things were done in detail in his presence as he plainly shows by omitting both the death of Peter and the departure of Paul from the city when he departed for Spain. So, back in the first century, you know, 100s, you have a list of books and it says right there that Luke wrote Acts. Alright, the Acts of the Apostle. And it was part of the accepted scripture. Now, by the way, the Muratorian Canon does not contain all of the current 27 books, but it contains most of the ones that we have. All right. Um, externally, you also have Irenaeus. He was another early church father. He uh, frequently quotes Acts in many of his writings. Tertullian quotes Acts again and again and again as authoritative scripture. Um, and again, all of this does is show you that the early church fathers accepted this as authoritative as canonical as scripture, and they treated it as such. All right. Um, now the question then becomes: Okay, if this is scripture and it was accepted, by the way, that nobody. Another thing you have to look at when it comes to canonization is: Did anybody say it shouldn't be scripture? And the answer is no. I mean, very early on, there's really there was no discussion on whether it should or should not be part of the canon. All right. No one came out and said, well, I, I don't think Acts ought to be there. I think this other book ought to be there. Um, no one said that. Now, you know, when we talked hermeneutics and um, bibliology last term, there are some books where there was a disputation. Um, Acts was not disputed. Very early on, it was accepted. Um, who wrote the book of Acts? Well, everybody says, well, Luke did. How do you know that? Well, it says, it, does it say Luke did? Is there any place in the in Acts where it says Luke wrote this? What? No. So how do you know Luke wrote Acts? And by the way, he also wrote Luke. How do you know Luke wrote Luke? Writing to the same friend. So you know whoever wrote one wrote the other. So there's a linkage right there. Well, there are several reasons for accepting the Luke and Authorship. One, the Muratorian canon ascribes the authorship of Acts to Luke. Again, what is that? That goes back to the first century. Where did he get his, where did they get the information to write it down? Well, they're pretty close to the source, aren't they? I mean, they're not, they, they, they're not, they can't talk to Luke, obviously, but they know people who knew people who knew Luke. And they say Luke wrote this. All right. So that was accepted very early on, Luke, Luke wrote. By the way, nobody else comes up as a possible author. No one else says, well, we have this guy says Luke wrote, and this guy says this other guy wrote it. No, everybody says Luke wrote it. Clement of Alexandria, now who's he? Well, he was way early. He was like in the early 100s, all right? And uh, he wrote, uh, as Luke in the Acts of the Apostles relates that Paul said, men of Athens, I perceive in all things you're too superstitious. So from, you know, the early part of the first century, you got somebody saying, yep, or second century, I guess it is. They said, yep, Luke wrote this. Um, Tertullian, in his treatise on fasting, said, in the self-same commentary of Luke, the third hour is described as an hour of prayer, about which hour it was that they who received the initiatory gift of the Holy Spirit were held for drunkards. Well, where did he get that? Book of Acts, Luke wrote it. Irenaeus um, talked about Simon the Samaritan was that magician of whom Luke, the disciple and follower of the apostles, says he also writes in the same work. Um, says, And he also writes in the same work, Luke also recorded that Stephen, who was the first elected the deacon by apostles, 
It's first slain for the testimony of Christ's book regarding Moses as follows. So again, he, he universally ascribes Luke as writing Luke. But there are some internal evidences. All right. Um, one of the things you'll find as you read through the book of Acts, by the way, you need to read through the book of Acts at least three times in the class. It's helpful to read through the book that you're studying. But um, there's we sections and they sections. All right. Um, as you're going through, it says we went here, we went there. And then, uh, you know, another section has they or he did this or he did that. So you have the we and the they sections. Now, if you're just reading the book, what do you what what are you starting to get at there? Well, whoever wrote the book, right, is part of the we, and whoever wrote the book is not part of the they. So what you need to go through is you need to say, okay, who was with Paul, and who wasn't with Paul, and by a process of elimination, you find that there's only two possible candidates. All right. For example, the we sections of Acts are Acts 16, 10 through 11, 25 through 21, 18, and 27, 1 through 28, 16. So whoever was with Paul was with him on the, on the way over to Rome, right? He was with Paul in the ship on the way to Rome. Um, and uh, if you look at Acts 20, verse 4, all right, Timothy, Sopipater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Tychicus, and Trophimus are excluded. Who are these guys? Who are these guys? Well, who's Timothy, right? He's Paul's true son in the faith, right? He's the one, he and Titus were the two that replaced Paul in the ministry. Paul writes two books to uh, Timothy, one to Titus, calls them my true sons in the faith. Um, Timothy was Paul's troubleshooter. If he had a problem, he'd send Timothy over to clean things up, right? He sent Timothy to Philippi. He sent Timothy to Ephesus, right? Um, so... Timothy was a very close associate of Paul, really Paul's second-hand man. Uh, so Pipiter, Aristarchus, Secundus, and Gaius are all mentioned as friends of Paul. Uh, Tychicus, who's Tychicus? Well, he's the one that took the books of Colossians and Philemon, right? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Can you imagine being poor old Vijay Singh? You're three shots up. Last day, you shoot a 69, you lose by three shots. There's just no justice in the world, right? Um, Silas cannot fit into the we sections. Remember, Silas was the one with Paul in the um, Philippian jail. So what do you have? Well, you have Timothy and Lucas, Paul's traveling companions. They're the only two possible ones that could fit in. Timothy is excluded from Acts 20, 24, so who, or 20, verse 4. So who's left? Luke fits very well into the section. Luke being with Paul as he went through, um, as he went along on the missionary journeys. And uh, Luke and Acts employ the same grammar. If you if you study Greek, which you don't have to, but if you if you were to study Greek, you find that Luke and Acts have similar Greek. Um, it's also also you can tell from um, reading um, the Greek in the New Testament how how um, erudite. The person was. I mean, can you can you tell you know by, by looking at somebody's writing, can you tell how educated they are? For them, generally, 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 you can tell how educated they are. Luke and Acts has some of the highest, best, most educated Greek grammar in the entire that that they know of. In fact, there are classes in Greek language that use Luke and Acts as examples of classical Greek writing. I mean, it's that good. 
Um, so whoever wrote this had to be pretty smart. Well, what was Luke? What was his job? He's a doctor, you know, so you expect him to be highly educated. And so that fits in there. That's just another little evidence for it. Um, and also it's interesting, the medical language, if you look through Luke and Acts and you just look at it from the medical perspective, whoever wrote these had a medical knowledge. In fact, it's interesting, uh, the, the case of the woman who had the issue of blood, Luke goes pretty pretty easy on the doctors, whereas the other um, Gospels say, you know, she lost all her money to the doctors that couldn't help her out. And Luke sort of glosses over that a little bit, doesn't want to give him his profession a black eye. Um, but it's pretty easy to fit in that, that Luke wrote this. Luke wrote this. Now, Luke was a disciple of Peter, or not Peter, of Paul, right? He was with Paul. He was a disciple. He was very educated. Um, and in fact, Paul even mentions Luke, the beloved physician. All right. So we know that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. And Luke clearly is, is the author of these of these two books, both Luke and Acts. All right. Why did he write it? Why, why was Luke and Acts written? Well, he wanted to set in order the events, right? He wanted a record. He, he wanted to sit down and write an orderly account. He started with the book of Luke, which really concerns the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. Acts picks up with the ascension of Christ and goes through the history of the early church, right? And he wanted to write an orderly account of this. And Quite honestly, if you think about it, what, what, what would we not know if we didn't have the book of Acts? It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's not as much the Acts of the Apostles as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, you'd be scratching saying, you know, where did all these churches come from? Right? All of a sudden, you know, you got this church in Ephesus, you got one over in Corinth, you got one in Rome. What, what happened? You know, you know, we, Jesus ascends. The next thing you know, you have all of these churches all over the known world. Where, how they get there? You know, and who is this Paul character, anyways? You know, that's writing all of these books. Who is this guy? Yeah, where did he come from? You know, we don't read about any Paul. And wait a minute, I thought there were. We already have the twelve disciples. Where did he come in? How did he get to be an apostle? I mean, what happened? Where did he? We got. We already got our twelve. You know, how, how's he fit in? Um, so, I mean, there'd be so much that we would not know of the expansion of the early church. And if you want to think about it, maybe you never thought of it this way, Acts is really the, 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 um, the, the framework on which the entire last half of the New Testament is built. The Gospels sort of stand by themselves, right? But Acts is really provides the framework, the, the, if you want to call it the framing of the house that everything is attached to, um, all the epistles of Paul fit in to the history of what's going on in the book of Acts, you know, and the general epistles, and it all fits in. So without Acts, we wouldn't know how this all hangs together. We, we'd be scratching our heads trying to figure out how things fit. So it's a framework that pulls it all together, and there's a need to understand authoritatively how the church began and spread all right, in the first few decades. Also, here's something very important, very, very, very important. If you go to a liberal institution like Oberlin College, 
um, and take a religion class, which I did there, um, you're, you find that there's this, this thought out in these liberal circles that, and, and it's even brought out in, brought out in the Da Vinci Code materials that we talked about, that really what you have in the early church is this sort of theological chaos. In other words, you had all kinds of people with all kinds of competing theologies and all kinds of competing ideas about justification and the law and how does the law fit. And, and what happens is that, that they had these big fights and all of this stuff. And, 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 and what happened is the theology of Paul won the day, and that's why we're stuck with our current version of Christianity. It's sort of like Paul, else. yeah, and, and, they got, and then they, they suppressed or they got rid of the other stuff, and only now are we really discovering the true picture, i.e. the Da Vinci Code, the true picture of what was going on in the early church. That was theological chaos, all right? Well, does Acts give you a picture of this theological chaos? No, it, is, it shows you that Christianity is a unified, coherent movement. It's a coherent theology. And the Holy Spirit is orchestrating that. Now, you do have discussions and acts, okay, how do we fit the old covenant in with this, this, this new covenant? Um, and that was a tough thing for Jews. You gotta understand, you know, they were just so drilled into this Old Testament notion. And the thing to understand though, it was an errant Old Testament notion. The Pharisees did not have the right theology. All right, they had an idea of the law in that, but what they had done is they had twisted the law into being something it was never intended to be. All right, so their brand of Judaism was really an aberrant brand of Judaism. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So, you know, don't worry about it. We'll come back to it. But there's a need to show that Christianity was a coherent movement. That that there is a a, a logical and a systematic progression of Christianity, that it wasn't theological chaos, that there wasn't Peter and Paul arguing about different theologies, and Paul had the louder voice, and his voice carried the day, and poor old Peter lost out. That's one of the things um, they talk about is the theology of Peter versus the theology of Paul. You can probably pick up, go out to the internet and do a research a study on that, theology of Peter versus the theology of Paul. And there are people that write PhD papers on showing how Peter and Paul had these two distinctive theologies of justification. And, and they were, their intention, they were actually in tension with each other. They were actually contradictory to each other. And it just so happened that Paul sort of carried the day, and that's why Christianity looks the way it does today, instead of more like Judaism. You know, that's what happens when you get a bunch of liberals in a room and give them the Bible and tell them to figure it out. They come up with this theology of Peter versus theology of Paul. Acts shows that there's a single, coherent, logical progression. There's not theological chaos. Um, you also need to understand who Paul is and where he came from and where he headed. I mean, if, if somebody say, okay, give me the most important figure in the early church, apart from Jesus Christ, who is it? Peter, I'm here. I mean Paul. Yeah, who's the who's the who is the most important person in the early church? Yeah, well, that's if you're Catholic. Um, Paul is. Oh, I well, said, well, what about poor old Peter? You know, well, look, Peter wrote two books. Paul wrote eleven, right? 
I don't know how many it is, 11, 13, 13 books. Paul wrote 13 books, 14 if you count Hebrews, which I don't think you should, but, you know, he's got Peter beat, you know, seven to one on the number of books that he wrote. Wasn't Peter kind of the local leader and Paul was on? Paul, Paul is the one who bridged the old covenant to the new, right? He was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And, and God was making a transition from the Jews to the Gentiles. Okay. Um, you got to know who this guy is, where he came from, where he went. How was he converted? Who was he? And that's what Acts gives us. Um, it would be pretty safe to say that Peter and Paul both, mainly Paul, but both of them actually led the direction of the church in the beginning. As the problems arose, the two of them they were the two. They were the two central figures. Yeah, they were the two central figures in the early church. They were the two central. And Peter's ministry was focused mainly on the Jewish component. Um, Paul's was focused on the Gentile component. And in fact, if you want to outline Acts, Acts one through twelve is about Peter. Acts thirteen through twenty-eight is about Paul. I mean, that, that, that they're the ones that really um, dominate each section there. Um, look at Acts chapter 1. you got Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Um, you got him and John getting beat up, you know, going and, and, and healing the guy. They're the ones that are cast into prison. Um, you got Peter showing up at Cornelius. you got Peter showing up up in Samaria. Um, you know, you got, you got P Peter Peter's thrown in jail, and he's going to get his head cut off in Acts 12, you know. And then all of a sudden, Acts 13, what do you have? Well, here you have the conversion of, of Paul. You know, now all of a sudden it's Paul, 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 Paul all the way through, and Peter's only mentioned incidentally. All right? So that's sort of the way it worked out. Okay? And why is that? Well, in Acts 1 through 12, what is the geographical focus? Yeah. In Acts 13 through 28, what is the geographical focus? The world. So there you go. And it shows how Acts expanded and moved, you know, the, the, the gospel expanded through the Roman Empire. Um, when was it written? That's a good question. Like, when, when, did, when did Luke write this? Well, it, we don't know for certain, but there's some things that sort of tip us off on it. Um, yeah, most scholars say it was written between A.D. 60 and 62. Why is that? Well, that's when Paul was in prison in Caesarea Philippi. And, you know, remember in Acts 28, 26, 27, 28, talks about his and imprisonment. And it was for a period of two years. All right. Caesarea is up on this, up near the Sea of Galilee. All right. So Paul's in prison and, and Luke has the we section. That's one of the we sections there. Um, one of the interesting things you see about Luke and Acts as you study both of them is whoever wrote them had to do what? He had to visit Paul in prison, but who else did he visit? Yeah, he visited Mary. He visited, he did some research. Whoever wrote this historical record did some research. He probably um, uh, talked to primary sources. Um, it's interesting when you look at Luke, what do you have? You have, you know, the Magnificat. Where did he get that? Well, the Holy Spirit told him. Now, now wait. The Holy Spirit could have told him, right? 
There's nothing wrong with that. If you want to subscribe to the mechanical dictation theory of inspiration, you know, the Holy Spirit said, Paul, take, or Luke, take a letter. Okay, write this. You know, um, I don't think that's, uh, the, the way it was, was done. Luke did a research project, Luke Acts, and the Holy Spirit so superintended what he wrote that what he wrote was the Word of God. Every word was the Word of God. It's not to discredit verbal plenary inspiration. Of course, it's verbally and plenarily inspired. Verbally, the words, plenary, the whole thing. Um, the Holy Spirit superintended. He, he moved the hand of Luke and the mind of Luke and what he wrote so that out came Scripture. But where did Luke get the Magnificat? Where did he get the Anna's discussion in the, in the, in the temple? Where did he find out about some of these other things? Well, he, he looked at primary sources. He asked them. You know, the Potter Noster, the Magnificat, um, there's a couple others in there that, that great, great things that he, he wrote. And he got those from primary sources. So he, he, when would he have had time to do this research? Well, probably AD 60, 62. Also, when does, where does Acts end? Well, Paul's in a prison, or his own house actually, in Rome. So when was that? Well, that was shortly after Paul arrived in Rome. When did Paul shortly arrive in Rome? AD 62. So whenever Luke stopped writing, that, that's the time it stopped. Because you don't have any information about, well, what happened after Paul was imprisoned in Rome? And remember, there were two Roman imprisonments, right? The first one, he was in a house. The second one, he's in the Mamertine prison, most likely. And it's in the Mamertine prison that he actually wrote, you know, his first and second Timothy letters. When he was, when he was down in the, in the hole waiting to, to give his life for Christ. There's two imprisonments. And when you study 1 Timothy, what had happened? Well, Paul evidently was released from his first imprisonment. He had a period of ministry, and then he was re-arrested and taken to Rome very quickly. Um, remember he says, bring, the, bring my cloak and bring the parchments. Um, so Acts leaves at that first mission or first imprisonment, which would tend to make us believe it stopped in AD 62. So most likely, Luke collected his material over the years, and at some point there between 80, 60, 62, possibly, he wrote it. Do we know that for certain? No, we don't. But it makes the most sense. Um, Luke was definitely not written much after that. All right. Um, just, a, just an aside, where did Luke get his material? It's important to understand he got it from his own research. Now, he, that means he might have had bits and pieces of, of other materials. There might have been notes. Um, he probably talked to some of the apostles that were alive at that time. He might have interviewed Peter. You know, he might have talked to Peter and asked him, hey, what, what happened, you know, back in whatever, a few years ago. Um, but the Holy Spirit superintended it. When it came together, we have the Word of God here. Um, there's no indication of that. There's no indication of that. His gospel was a research paper as well. Yes. Um, there's no indication that... Now, does that mean that Luke did not know Christ? He might have known Christ. Um, but there's no record in the Gospels that this guy Luke was a believer at that time. Um, we don't know when he became a believer. 
Um, it probably would have been from the you know AD 30, early 30s when the church was founded, to AD until the first uh, we section somewhere in there. Luke became a believer. We don't know, but he probably was not one who walked with Christ. He was also a Gentile, right? Which would seem to indicate who led him to the Lord. Paul did. All right. Do we know that for certain? We don't know that for certain. The Bible doesn't tell us. All right. We do know he was a Gentile. All right. Um, Peter is the main figure in Acts chapter 1 through 12. Paul is the main figure in 13 through 28. Um, if you want to outline Acts, Acts 1.8. You'll be witness of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. Jerusalem, start out Acts, you know, first few chapters of Acts. And then you go to Judea, expands outward. Then it goes to Samaria, Acts chapter 8, you got Paul up in, or Peter up in Samaria. And then the uttermost part of the earth. So it started out small and it made its way out. That's another way to outline the book of Acts, Acts 1-8. Um, Acts chose the growth of the early church through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. But really, who is it the Acts of? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one superintending this growth. All right. It's a missionary book. Talks about the mission of the church, what it did. It's all about conversion, the proclamation of the gospel. Um, it's an inspired account of the advent, mission, and operation of the Holy Spirit. Where did the Holy Spirit come from? Right? I mean, now, was the Holy Spirit around in, in the Old Testament? Sure. How do you know? Talk, talk about the Spirit. Talk about the Spirit. And if anybody is ever redeemed, how are they redeemed? The Holy Spirit's got to convert them, right? Even if it's Old Testament, New Testament, anywhere, who is the agent of regeneration is the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers in the Old Testament. That's that's a New Testament concept. Um, but the Holy Spirit was definitely operative in the Old Testament. I mean, even David said, where, there, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? I mean, there was, a, there was an understanding that the Holy Spirit was evident and operative in the Old Testament. If he was not, no one would have ever been saved. And when I say saved, I mean redeemed. No one would have ever been redeemed in the Old Testament apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So he was there, but the Holy Spirit's work took on a different aspect in the new. We now have the indwelling Holy Spirit, remember? And Christ said, I will send the Comforter to you. Now, if Christ said, I will send the Holy Spirit to you and we don't have the book of Acts, how would you interpret that? Did he come? Did he not? What's it mean? I, you know, Paul talks about the Spirit. So what is this? You know, so you need to know really where the Spirit came from, how he works, his operation in believers in the New Testament. Um, there's 24 separate addresses in Acts where you know you have a sermon or an address to somebody. Um, Paul visits Jerusalem five times in the Book of Acts, so there's a lot of Back and forth there. And why is it important that Paul visited Jerusalem? What is that telling you? And that the message of Paul was not incongruous with the teaching of the church. All right. 
Sorry, I'm blowing all this hot air out, Sandy. Um, it also furnishes the background for ten of Paul's epistles. Um, you know, when you when you study the New Testament, you got Paul wrote thirteen epistles that we know of. We don't know about Hebrews. Probably he didn't write Hebrews, um, but thirteen of them. Um, on his first missionary journey or second missionary journey, you have first and second second Thessalonians. All right, second missionary journey. Where did Paul? Here's here's where did Paul go on his first missionary journey? Let's just see how we do here. No, first missionary journey. No. Asia Minor. That's his first missionary journey. He went to Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. There's two Antiochs. There's a Pisidian Antioch. That's in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And then there's the Syrian Antioch, where Paul was from. There's two different cities named Antioch. He went to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Remember those, those three towns, four towns. And then he went back and reported what went on. And then later on, on a second missionary journey, he went to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Made his way over to Miletus, and then he got the Macedonian call. Went over to Thessalonica, right? From there he went down to er, Thessalonica, Philippi, down to Berea, down to Athens. From Athens he wrote back First Thessalonians, or, and then to Corinth, then he wrote back First and Second Thessalonians, on a second missionary journey. So the background of that is that's where those two books come from. Galatia was probably written after his first missionary journey back to the area of Galatia. Galatia was where it was the province. It was a provincial name. And that is where Iconium, Lystra, and Derby were. They were in the province of Galatia. Antioch was in the province of Pisidia, which is like right next to Asia. So they're like, like it's like a border town. Um, so that's those three books. And then, of course, on his third missionary journey, he wrote First and Second Corinthians, um, Romans. The book of Romans was on, he wrote Romans from Ephesus back to, over to Rome. Um, then his, uh, he wrote, uh, and then on his uh, fourth journey where he went to Rome when he was in prison, you have Paul's uh, prison epistles, Philemon, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. All right, so you know where those fit in. Um, the one that do not fit in are First and Second Timothy. Those are written written after the chronology of Acts. Those written later on. Uh, Paul wrote First uh, Timothy to Timothy in Ephesus to set in order the things in the church there. Second um, Timothy was written when Paul was just before he was crucified, or not crucified, but probably beheaded for his faith. Titus was written somewhere in that time as well. All right. Um, so it gives you a history of when these books were written. Again, it provides a framework. You get an idea of where these books fit into the overall expansion of the early church. And by the way, why is it important to know when these books were written? Why is it helpful? Why is it helpful to know... Um, you know the chronology of the of the books in the New Testament. I mean, so the inerrancy of the Bible is proof that it's true, and we compare with other historical accounts. Yeah. It shows the things that were coming up as to the beliefs of the people and their particular 
Exactly. It helps you understand, because most of the New Testament books are polemical in nature. What is polemical? It's a fancy word. Deal with the problem, right? Um, why was First John written? Well, you had this concept of Gnosticism starting to rear its ugly head. So John had to write this book to deal with a heresy. All right, and that's why you get the book First John, because there was a problem. There was some heretical teachings. Why did Paul write Galatians? Well, after he preached the gospel, who came in right on his heels? Judaizers. What did they teach? Law. You're saved by grace, but you're kept by law. Okay, you might you might receive Christ as your Savior, but if you don't keep the law of Moses, you're toast. You lose it. So Paul had to write Galatians in order to deal with that problem. All right. So the reason it's it's important to maybe understand this is when you put the books that Paul wrote in the historical context of the book of Acts, it helps you deal with understand how the church was dealing with theological issues that arose in the early church. All right. And one of the things that you have to be able to answer or fit into whatever systematic theology you have is this progression of revelation. All right. Um, you know, an example of that would be um, the whole issue of spiritual gifts, particularly like tongues, healings, the sign gifts. You have them in the early part of the book of Acts. Right. When was Coloss when was First Corinthians written that deals with the whole issue of the misuse of tongues? Well, that was around about AD 51, 52. We can pretty much date that from Gallio being pro-council in Achaia. We, we have a brick that actually has the dates of his procuratorship. So we know pretty close when Paul wrote First Corinthians, AD 51. But what books come after AD 51? Well, let's see, you got Romans, you got Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. You've got um, the book of Romans in there. You got 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. What is unique about all of those books? There's no mention of what? Of the miraculous sign gifts. There's nothing in Timothy that talks about miraculous sign gifts. It says they're now. Is that proof? No. But what 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 happens is you have to be able to answer why is tongue such a big deal early on in the church, and then starting about A.D. 54 on, there's no mention of it anywhere. Nobody even talks about it. It's not even discussed in the rest of the New Testament. You have to be able to answer that question. You just have to fit that in to wherever you land on that. You need to be able to deal with that question. Why why is there silence on that from there on out? Um, so you just got to fit that in, all right? Um, Acts focuses on Peter and Paul, although there are other people mentioned. And here's this is very important. Acts is a book about what happened, not what should happen. All right? It's a historical book. It tells you the events. It tells you how the church expanded, how the church grew. It's not, it's not to tell you what should happen. It tells you what happened. All right? And, and that's, very, that's a very important thing to understand 
in Acts. Because what happens is you get yourself into problems when you go to a passage of Scripture um, that is historical in nature, and then you begin to try and um, um, use that history to prove or to support some doctrinal notion that is not clearly taught elsewhere. All right? Uh, for example, you know, somebody says, well, you know, I, I should be able to marry more than one wife. Well, why is that? Well, David was married to more than one wife. Abraham was married to more than one wife. Solomon had 900 of them. I mean, well, now, wait a minute, all right? Just because he had it, does that mean I should have it, right? No, wrong. Just because somebody did something doesn't mean I should do it. Just because it happened historically there does not mean it should happen to me. I have to make the case for that before I just marry more than one wife. All right? Um, that's just an example. Um, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Acts is describing what is happening. happening. It's not prescribing what should happen. All right? Um, when it comes, uh, an example of this would be, let's, let's, um, let's talk about, you know, one of the hotbed issues, tongues. You know, there, people land on various spots on this. Um, wherever you land on this, you have to fit your theology of tongues into the scripture, wherever you land on it. Um, and there are some places, and I, I've talked to people, and I asked them, I said, well, you know, why is it that you, you believe in tongues? Why do you believe that that is, is a normal gift for the church today and I should be practicing? And say, well, you know, they did it in Acts. All right, they did it in Acts. Did they do it in Acts? Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah, that's a true statement. Sure they did. All right. And they and I say, well, okay, well, well, tell me, you know, how, how do you how do you get this? Well, you got to tarry for it. You got to you got to wait on the Lord and you pray, and and all of a sudden it just comes. I had one guy tell me this, you know. So what you need to do, you need to tarry on the Lord. And I said, well, where do you get that? Well, Acts two tells you that you need to tarry and wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I said, okay. Well, Acts two says they tarried, but when in Acts eight, when the Samaritans got the gift of the Holy Spirit, how did that happen? It was instantaneously in the moment of their salvation. I'm over in Cornelius. How did he get it? Pardon? Spill from after his salvation. But now over in Acts 19, how did they get it? Paul prayed and laid hands on them. So which is the way you get it? You can't. In Acts, there's multiple ways. So, so the question you have to ask yourself, is there something else going on here other than this is how you get this gift of time? I think there's something else going on. All right. And, and we'll, 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 we'll stay through that. And, and look, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'll be forthright up front. I am a cessationist. I do not believe the miraculous sign gifts are normative. Notice what I said here. Normative. What is it? What do, what do you think I mean when I say normative? Normal. The normal practice every day. Now, can God give somebody the miraculous gift to speak in a foreign language if he wants to? He can do whatever he wants to. Who am I to tell him he can't? Is that a normal practice? No. If you're going to be a missionary today, what do you do for four years? You go to language school. 
It'd be just cool to have the gift of the Holy Spirit and be done with it. So you think it's I think it's ceased as a normative. Normative. Now, now you know, you're not going to be thrown out of the class if you don't agree with that. That's fine. All right. That's all right. Okay. Um, but whatever you, wherever you land on that, you've got to be able to, from the scripture, support why it is that you believe they did or they did not. All right. That's, that's all that you need to do. I believe that the, that the preponderance of evidence of the scripture says that as a normative part of the church, they ceased. And we're going to talk about, all, we'll go through all of that later on and, 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 you know, look through why I believe that and what the various views on that are. Okay. But when you, when you want to say, well, the books of the, you know, tongue should be normative in the church and you should tarry for it. You have to ask, well, what does normative mean when they have all kinds of different ways that they got it, it was manifest in all kinds of different formats. Um, what was the normal one? Which one is the one I do today? Um, because there are four different ways people got the Holy Spirit back then. All right. Which one is the normal way to get it? All right. Um, you have to answer that. That's all. You've got to fit that into wherever you land. You've got to fit that in. Um, when you look at Acts, you know, the, let's, let's think here about literary genre. Those who've taken um, bibliology and that realize that the Bible is a is a literary work. What's what's literary genre? When we talk about literary genre. What are we talking about? Remember? Pardon? Yeah, there's there's um, there's a poetical part, wisdom literature. Um, there's didactic, which is teaching. Um, there's apocalyptic, which is highly a lot of imagery. You know, Book of Revelations, apocalyptic visions. Um, you've got um, Gospel writing, which is little pericopes, they're called pericope, which is a little section, a little short, self-contained section, and you got a bunch of these. You know, you look at the, read through the Gospel of Luke, you've got short little snippets of Christ's life, uh, you know, parable, and, you know, and then he went and did this miracle, then he was over here, and that's gospel, that's kind of gospel, and you have something called historical narrative. And in fact, most of the Bible is historical narrative, the book of First Kings, Second Kings, First Side Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, you know, half of the book of Daniel is all historical narrative. What's that? It's, it's telling you what's going on. It's giving you history. It's important because it tells you what's going on, but to interpret what is going on, where do you have to go? To the didactic, to the teaching portions. Um, you have wisdom literature, right? Um, the book of Proverbs, train up a child in a way which he is, should go when he's old, he won't depart from it. Say, well, you know, I did the best with my kid. He's a, turned out to be, you know, that, that verse didn't work. Wait a minute, you know. Um, well, what is wisdom literature? What is the characteristic of wisdom literature? It's a pithy saying. A penny saved is a penny earned. Is that always true? Not necessarily. Most of the time it is. A stitch in time saves nine. Does that always work? Most of the time, but not all the time. It's pithy saying. So, you, you know, when you read the book of Proverbs, understanding is a pithy saying that it's not an airtight, gilded promise by God. Rather, generally, if you train your, up your child rightly, generally, what will happen? It'll turn out all right. Generally. All right? Yeah, it's guidance. It's pithy sayings. But that is the characteristic 
of that kind of literature. Now, if you go over to the, 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 the teaching part where there's doctrine being taught, that, that is not pithy sayings, right? That's not pithy sayings. That's commands. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives, he's not making it a suggestion. He's giving it as a command. All right? So understanding the type of literature helps you understanding how to fit it in. What is Acts? Acts is historical narrative. Here's what's going on. Here's the events. Here's how the people acted. Now, I can use that to illustrate doctrinal teaching, right? But I can't use that to create doctrines. That's where I get myself into trouble. When I create a doctrine on historical narrative that where, the, where there's no basis elsewhere in Scripture, particularly in the didactic doctrinal portions for that, I'm just coming up with stuff. All right? So that's important. It's important to understand that. All right? Um, let's look at... Um, Let's go another 10 minutes, we'll take a break. We'll have a little short, we'll take a 15 minute break here in 10 minutes. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about several cons or several topics right now, and they're gonna sound disconnected and disjointed, like you know, what am I doing this for? But it's all gonna make sense. As we start going through the book of Acts, like, ah, I know why he did that. Okay, it makes sense now. So take my word for it. This is this will make sense later on as we work through Acts. But um, let's look at this topic of, of, um, of systematic theology. You say, well, what does that have to do with the gospel, or the, not the gospel, but the book of Acts? Don't worry, it'll, it'll make sense in a couple of weeks, if not later on tonight. What is a systematic theology? When I talk about a systematic theology, what is that? The cookbook theology, step by step, everything fits in place. And you systematize it to try and take all of Scripture and pull it together in a coherent picture, right? If I ask you, uh, what's the Bible say about heaven? Where are you going to find that out? Well, it's splattered all over the place, isn't it? I mean, it's not like, you know, oh, well, Paul gave us everything we need to know about heaven in this chapter over here, you know. Um, so systematic theology is an attempt to systematize, in other words, provide a framework for the theology of Scripture, not only in its doctrine, but here's another component, in the unfolding of God's plan through history. All right? In fact, what I, I wrote down here, systematic theology is an attempt to provide a theological framework for understanding not only the theology of the Bible, that is, what about God, what about the Holy Spirit, what about Christ, etc., but also of God's unfolding plan through history. Both components are there. The theology and God's plan. Okay? Now, why is that a good idea? Why is it a good idea to... By the way, just so you understand, all of you in here have some level, at some level, you have a systematic theology. At some level all of you in here have have this okay and is it systematic theology that tries to make every piece of scripture fit with the rest yeah it's an attempt to bring all of the scripture together in a coherent um understandable 
format, not only theologically, but the plan and purpose of God through the ages, how God has worked through history. Both components are, are there, okay? Not just a theological component, but God's working out of history component. Um, what are some of the good things of a systematic thought? What, what are some benefits of having this? By the way, all of you have it. All right. Yes. You can see, like, like um, you know, how, how the gospel, for example, in your first mention principle, you've got the proto-evangelion there in Genesis 3.15. Well, how has that worked out through history? And, and, how, and, and whatever I come up with needs to fit in. All right. That's what Paul said. He says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Dividing is not to cut apart. Dividing is to put together. It's a bad English word. He's saying you need to orthotomeo scripture. What's orthotomeo? It's to cut straight. And he was a tent maker. He made tents for a living. And he didn't go out and he didn't buy, you know, 400 yards of, you know, Otis tent material number 35. You had a bunch of animal skins, right? And how do you fit all the animal skins together? Well, you got to cut them right. You got to cut them straight, you know. So that so they so they fit together in a. It's like making a a dress or a shirt, you know. You've got all this cloth, but you got to cut it in a certain pattern to sew it together to make it look right. Okay. And Paul is saying you've got to work hard so that when you take all of the scripture, it fits together. It makes sense. You don't have three arms. And your shirt, you got two arms. You know, he wants it all to fit together, and that's that's a benefit of systematic theology. It helps you systematize and and put it together. You're gonna say, um, for example, like uh, the Deuteronomy, thou shalt not kill, as it would be throughout the Bible and, and different aspects, where it really doesn't mean thou shalt not kill. Period. But in this event, you can or yeah, systematizing it. All those things together and coming up with what it really means. Yeah. And here's the challenge to everyone in here. Whatever you believe about any theological issue, it has to fit into your system. It has to make sense. And where it doesn't make sense, you need to adjust your system. All right? Yeah. Now that's a naughty one. That, in fact, that's a good illustration. Um, the the rapture. There are some that say, well, the rapture occurs before, during, after, never. You know. Um, well, what you need to do is you need whatever you believe about the rapture, wherever you land on that. You need to be able to explain all of the scripture. You need to be able to understand, well, why in the world then did Paul write First Thessalonians to people who thought that they were left behind? How, how do you deal with that? You know, I mean, they literally, you know, one of the big problems in Thessalonica is they said, you know, somebody told us the rapture's already gone, or this coming is, Christ already came, we're still here. Wait a minute, what's going on? What about all those people that died? You know, what happened to them? You know, and so wherever you land on the rapture, you need to be able to fit whatever you believe about the rapture in with the unfolding of 1 Thessalonians, 
Second Thessalonians, um, the second coming of Christ. How does that all fit in? The book of Revelation, how does it all fit in? And what did Jesus say about it? And what did Jesus, yeah, did, you know, did he say anything at all about it? Did he hint about it? You know, wherever you land, and eschatology is one of those that are, that's the hardest to systematize because there are different theological systems that treat the whole eschatological issue completely differently. And we're going to talk about a couple of them here in a minute. Um, but the, one of the benefits of, of a systematic theology is it gives you a theological framework. Okay, um, It aids in comprehending God's plan through history. How do I, what is God up to anyways? You know, now, now you're not going to read one verse in the Bible that gives you everything, tells you what God is up to. But as you understand the complete scripture, you get an emerging picture of what God is up to, what God is doing, and how he's doing it, and how he's accomplishing his will through the ages. All right? And it aids in that. Um, and, that and the final thing, like Don said, it, it gives you a pattern for putting it together, for making it all fit. All right, so those are positive things about it, but, but there are some downsides to a systematic theology. What do you think some of them are? What's a downside to a systematic theology? You close your mind, right? You know, wait a minute. You know, I have I have this nice little neatly wrapped box. Then, you know, Paul's got to write this one obtuse verse over here, and it doesn't fit my system. So what do you tend to do with that verse? Well, we just sort of like work around it. You know, we just pretend it isn't there. Listen, you know, my, my the challenge I have and the challenge you have as a student of Scripture is everything has to fit. You can't pick what you like and toss the rest away. You know, one of the things we've talked about many times, and I've converted Don. He's a he's a five point Calvinist now. But wherever you land on that, wherever you land on Calvinism, sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man, all the verses of the Bible have to fit. You can't say, "Well, God chose me." Well, then what do you do about the whosoever will may come? But you can't say, I like the whosoever will may come, but then they'll say, well, what does it say when he says he chose you before the foundation of the world? Wherever you land, whatever, wherever you come out of on that, all the verses have to fit together. You can't pick the ones you like and toss the other ones in the basket. All right? And one of the dangers of a systematic theology is you've got this nice, neat little theological system, and if things don't fit, you just ignore them. All right, you just you forget about them. Um, what I said here is that it locks you in a system of thinking that prevents you from looking outside the box. You don't even consider an alternative viewpoint because that doesn't fit your theology. It doesn't fit what you. Now, where do you get your systematic theology? Where does that come from? Whatever theology you have, where does it come from? Where do you get it? All the teaching through the years. You've heard somebody preach a sermon on this, and that, that got in your mind. It became part of your theological framework, and many people never go back and ask, did that guy say the right thing? They never question it. It just becomes part of their, their theology. That's called folk theology. You get it from other people. You get it from sermons. Um, you may have read a book. You may have a notion, and... All of us have a develop, 
all of us in here have certain preconceptions. When we pick up the Bible and we look at a verse of Scripture, we're interpreting that in light of a system of theology that we have. All right? And if you're not careful, what happens is your systematic theology, whatever theology you have, prevents you from considering possible, equally valid alternatives. All right? It doesn't mean you throw away your systematic. You should never do that. Don't throw it away. Just understand that it's there. And maybe it's coloring the way you look at a particular passage. That's why you have all those denominations because um, everybody got their own interpretation. Mm -hmm. Actually, everybody tries to bring things to the table You know, when it comes to the, the charismatic gifts, the signed gifts, they are there in the New Testament. How do you fit that in? Your systematic theology. And how do you answer all of the, all the yeah, but what about this, what about that? And, and, if, and the problem is if you're just so locked into, look, dang it, they have tongues is valid for today, and you don't even consider the possibility, the remote possibility, that maybe it's not, you're not, you're not being true to yourself. Now, you may consider that, and you may still come back to your same conclusion. Fine. Or, Alan, it could be very much just the opposite. You know, just the other way around. Um, you know, listening to you, I don't totally agree with everything you say. But it, That's a like, good thing. As I know, as we go through this, though, it's like, you know, lights go on for certain things. You know, I'll go back, I'll start looking things up to see, you know, whether what I've been taught and what I've learned along the way is really the right way to believe or... In other words, I'm open-minded, you know. I'm still willing to change. And there's other things that I hear that I, I don't believe are true. Um, a couple of things I agree with you. But I'm also wide open to show me, you know. If, if it's real, it's real. All of us need to be teachable. That's not clear. Yes. Every, every person in here, when it comes to Scripture, you need to be teachable. Don't get to the point where you think you've got all the answers. Because you don't. All right. Be teachable. Be open. Be willing. Now, there are certain non-negotiables. You know, is Jesus God or not? You don't discuss that. If he's not God, we might as well just go home and be done with it. Right. I mean, there are certain things that that are non-negotiable. You can't give a quarter on things. But there's a lot of other stuff that we, you know, they're good, honest people. They're going to be in heaven that have different viewpoints on things. Because we're all in a process of understanding and, and coming to a knowledge. And, and you know, do you believe that today everything you believed 10 years ago? I hope not. I don't. I've changed. I've had been challenged. I've had to come back and say, well, you know, that, that doesn't fit. That doesn't make any sense. This, you know, this, this, this makes more sense. Don't be so, so um, chained to your, to your systematic theology that you refuse to consider possible alternatives. That's one of the dangers. Um, one of the one of the things that really brings this home to me is I have I have a great series of, of um, sermons by R.C. Sproul and people from the Covenant Theology viewpoint on the whole millennium. Of course, they don't believe there's a future for Israel. Um, they believe you know Jesus comes back and that's the end, eternal state. There is no literal future kingdom for Israel. And uh, where do they get that? Well, that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Where did that come from? Well, that came from the Reformation. 
and you know Martin Luther, the Reformation, and you know you start going back and you find that you know the reason they believe this is not because they've made an exegetical, comprehensive study of the Word of God and come to that conclusion. Rather, it's because it's part of their creed, and they're not willing to go back and ask themselves, is that creed an accurate creed? Now, for the most part, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a very good creed. I mean, I was listening to one guy, and he says, you know, his, uh, his name is Jonathan Gerstner. His dad was um, Dr. Gerstner, who wrote a three-volume work on the theology of Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the greatest theologians in American history. And he said, you know, I believe what my dad said, that we should, you know, we don't even need to study systematic theology. You just need to study what Jonathan Edwards said. Now, what's the assumption there? Jonathan Edwards is always right. Well, he was right about a lot of things, but is he was he right about everything? What, what should your what should your loyalty be? Should be to the truth. <laughs> your loyalty is to this. To, to, your loyalty is not to your denomination. It's not to some guy that's teaching you. It's not to your pastor. However, you may revere and and, and respect him. It's to this. But you know, the great thing about it is <coughs> we can sit here today because we all believe the same basis. You know, when it comes to yeah. like baptism, whether it's sprinkled and all that, those are the little differences that, that don't make a difference at all, really. You know, when we get, get the We have the essentials all, done. Laugh about it, yeah. Um, one other problem is that it can force you to misinterpret scripture because you want it to fit your system. Well, they should challenge that because that's, you know, in the church there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male nor female. All right. Yeah, it's because because what happens is, and see, this goes back to what we're discussing. They'll take one verse, they love that verse, but just because these fifty other verses doesn't fit that, they just ignore them. What I'm saying is, you got to make all fifty-one verses fit wherever you land. All right, that's our challenge. And that doesn't mean all of us are going to walk out of this class or out of anywhere and say, yeah, we all agree on that. But at least think it through. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.